call it. Call it, yes. For what? Just call it. Welcome to episode 100 of Call It Friend of the podcast, where usually two friends watch two films decided by the flip of a coin. This week, myself, Andy J. Ritchie, and my co-host, Annika Tiernan, watched the most recent film from Swedish director Ruben Ulstlund, Triangle of Sadness. As always, the podcast contains spoilers for the film right from the start. Check out justwatch.com for streaming and rental options in your region. You can find us on Instagram at Call It Friend of Podcast. Drop us a line there for any feedback or recommendations. Peace. Live as a motherfucker. So I hear. So I'm led to believe. All right. How's things in uh, the tax haven over there? <laughs> I don't know how you've decided that Montenegro's a tax haven. It just gonna, seems I'll like... I'll do research into that, but... It doesn't, doesn't it seem, seem right. like somewhere some, somebody would hide out? I mean, you're hiding out there, Yeah, for based example. on James Bond films, not on actual life. In James Bond films, it looks very much nicer than you're describing it. I have to say, it is nice. It's a nice place. I, I can. I'm looking at my window here. I'm looking at the Bay of Kotor and snow-capped mountains, but at the same time, there's also like thunderstorms constantly. It is January. Bear in mind. And uh, how are the ladies? I have no idea. You haven't That's seen any not... ladies? <laughs> no, not a single one. This is this is a place of men. Oh my god! Everyone has got the face of Rory Kinnear. Well, yeah, I suppose. And it, yeah. like, is is it getting on okay after the World Cup? <laughs> Why? What's that got to do with anything? What happened to? Well, Montenegro? you're you're in Qatar, right? Oh, that's right. Yeah, I'm in the Bay of Qatar. That's ah. this is the same place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, this is episode one hundred of the podcast, and oh, then yeah! episode one. It's not really episode one hundred. It is if you go by numbering. If you're a fan of numbers. Yeah, but I think it's something like 107 because we put a bunch of other shite. But you're obsessed with numbers. I love them. I love them. But number one, the first episode of the podcast, we talked about Ruben Östlund's The Square. His last film. Yeah, and now we're talking about his most recent film, Triangle yes. of Sadness. Uh, me and Andy are a bit late to the party because, uh, yeah, we d- we didn't see it in cinemas when everybody else did, and was going on yeah, and, and on and on Blackula. about it. Yeah, I didn't feel like being part of the, the, the craze. Even though, I don't know, was it that popular? How did I mean, it do? It won the, it, it, uh, won the Palme d'Or. Oh, that's, did it? That's fairly popular. Yeah, back-to-back oh, yeah. back Palme d'Or wins for old, uh, old Ruben. Old Ruben Ostland. That's pretty good. But before we get on to that, uh, let me just say these have been a fabulous 107 episodes together, and uh, here's <laughs> yeah. to 107 more. Yeah. Now, uh, what have you been watching? Well, I've got, I've got three things I'm going to talk about. In ascending order of quality. That's, uh, that's how I do it now. I start with the shite and move on to the good. But I've only got three things. I feel like you've got more. I do. Should I start? Yeah. Okay. So last weekend on a Sunday when my family was taking a siesta, I watched, what feel, for what feels like the first time in years, but I watched it a bunch back in the day, um, Rosemary's Baby. Now, I hadn't mm. seen it in years. Um, and uh, whatever about Roman Polanski, I disapprove of him. But Me Too has finally caught up with him, would you believe? Now he's, he's persona non grata. His adaptation of that Robert Harris book is not getting released, which is mad because I recently read the book and I would quite like to see the movie. Wait, what was that? What was the... An Officer and a Spy. Is not getting released. What do you mean? That was... Well, it didn't get a... Ago. It didn't... It, it, like, yeah, but it kind of got squashed is what I'm saying. Mm. I could still find it. Yeah, so turns out Rosemary's Baby is actually pretty fucking incredible. I hadn't seen it in a long time. It's I was just a, in. 
Yeah, I know. But when's the last time you watched it? Oof, 20 years. Easy. I mean, it's a little bit haunting. Fair enough. So for people who don't know, this is Roman Polanski's, I think this was pretty much his career maker, really. Um, in 1968 film, Rosemary's Baby, it's an adaptation of a book lady gets impregnated by Satan, basically, and everybody's in on it, including her husband. Now, Polanski has it's said... Massive spoilers. <laughs> well, no, that's not a spoiler at all. For, but, like, that's the mad thing about the film, is Guy is in on it from the moment he has a conversation with the first Satanist. But the, and it's never really hidden that it's Satan's baby. Mar- Mary's the only... Rosemary's the only one who's kind of in the dark. There's one twist that I won't give away, but basically... Polanski wanted to direct it like it's very, very possible that Rosemary's just going insane. And that's mm. kept up. But also the thing is, he, for all the Satanists, he hired these quirky sort of comedy actors. I think Ari Aster used exactly the same trick with Hereditary. And it's so funny, but creepy and just really, really super effective. Mia Farrow gives a just career best performance obviously as does uh, John Cassavetes but the, as I say it's the Satanists um, Ruth Gordon and uh, a guy called Sidney Blackmare that are just I mean they just kill it another lady called Patsy Kelly who's particularly freaky uh, anybody who's kind of just watched it to death years ago and hasn't seen it in a while, I would really recommend picking it up again. Super effective, super good movie. I'm going to probably uh, rewatch Chinatown again soon on the strength of it. Forget it, Donica. <laughs> it's Montenegro. <laughs> exactly, it's Qatar. What do you got? Give me one. Well, uh, I thought, first of all, I should probably talk about my most recent cinema visit <laughs> because we haven't done one of these for ages of talking about things that we watched recently. I went to the cinema over the Christmas period and I went with my mum. Mm-hmm. So we went to see... <laughs> I'm going to say this was her choice rather than mine. We went to see Whitney Houston, I Want to Dance with Somebody. Whitney Houston, colon, I Want to Dance with Somebody. Now, I do really like that song, and I also enjoyed Kevin McDonald's documentary, Whitney. Did you know that Whitney Houston's debut LP called Simply Whitney Houston had four number one singles on it? I did not, but allow did me to, know g- that? to guess, maybe? Well, it's hard to choose a favorite among so many great tracks, but The Greatest Love of All is one of the best, most powerful songs ever written about self-preservation dignity its universal message crosses all boundaries and instills one with the hope that it's not too late to better ourselves Since are you doing Donica, are you... it's impossible in this world we live in to empathize with others we can always empathize with ourselves it's an important message crucial really and it's beautifully stated on the album are you doing patrick bateman no these are my original thoughts <laughs> this is what i believe are you definitely not doing patrick bateman maybe a little just a okay little bit. Because he does talk about Whitney Houston in that book, doesn't he? He does. That is a quote from ah, nice. uh, American Psycho. I gave the game away, folks. How's the movie? Well, I'll give you some of the, the key information here. It stars Naomi Aki from End of the Fucking World and Star Wars Rise of Skywalker. Big fan of End of the Fucking seen. World. <laughs> I haven't seen that, but I have seen Star Wars Rise of Skywalker. I have no idea who she was in it. But she plays uh, Whitney Houston. She's English. Uh, she's very good in the role, though. Mm. playing uh playing whitney but 95 percent of the singing is recordings of uh houston herself i found out after the film that's which an odd choice kind of disappointing yeah. <laughs> like, oh, they didn't even sing it's press play yeah that is um that is almost but not quite but in the direction of a cash-in really isn't it well 
You t- uh, this was written by Anthony McCartan, who's the king of the biopic. Uh, he wrote Theory of Every- Everything, The Darkest Hour, and Bohemian Rhapsody. Of and the three of those, I like one. Darkest Hour? Darkest Hour, I like, yeah. Yeah, well, this film most closely resembles the, his, his Queen film. It's a straightforward musician biopic ending on the recreation of a celebrated concert which in this case is the 1994 American Music Awards and the medley that Whitney Houston sang. I'm sure you remember it clearly. I do remember it, yes. Yeah, it was good. She did some songs and she put them together. Does I, Crack Whitney fi- feature? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It does. It, it, you know, I'm not the target audience for this, but it goes, it goes through her life beat by beat and it doesn't shy away from the tough parts, the crack smoking, mm. her relationship with Bobby Brown. In some ways, it kind of... It takes it takes away some of his guilt and puts it more like it was sort of equal parts that they fucked each other up rather than saying like it was Bobby Brown and he was a bad well that's guy the story as I've always heard it to be fair bags. that's the story as I've always heard it that they were a very very toxic couple but but like most music biopics it's been ruined by Walk Hard the Dewey Cox story which really gave the game respect away on the formula which is you know like you don't want any when part he- of this Whitney. This is crack. Yeah. It turns all your bad feelings into good feelings. It's a nightmare. Yeah. I mean, that is such a funny movie. Wrong kid, dad. So this is, I mean, as I say, I'm not the target audience for this. I didn't expect to like it at all. It's middling. It's okay. I, it's fairly interesting. It runs through. I've, I mean, I didn't kind of forget or, don't, or never realized how massive she was. Like, just fucking huge back in the 80s. Well, I know and that only from having watched the documentary. Mm. And it's I would, not my world. I think I think watching that would be that would make more sense. I th- I'm guessing that that's a slightly stronger take on things. Yeah, I mean Kevin McDonald, he's good Kevin at McDonald's, that. Yeah, he did the the Bob Marley one, which is very good. And also State of Play, directed uh, the original oh, TV right. the State TV of Play, series. not the oh, terrible where? Ben Affleck uh, remake. Ah, it's not bad, but yeah, the TV well, series is great. Doesn't uh, hold a candle to the TV series. Yes. Um, oh no, actually, I think I'm wrong. I think Kevin McDonald directed the movie. Now that I think about it. Are you sure? No, but I think I think some. I think I think uh, the I don't think so. Harry Potter director uh, y- Yates directed the TV show. Now that I think about it. The film. Oh, you're right. No, Kevin McDonald did do the shitey. Uh, the, yeah. The not great. And Paul Abbott yeah, you're wrote right. yeah, you're right. that yeah, and David uh, Yates. David Yates, series. that's right, yeah, that's right. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right. Can I get a good knowledge? Yeah, well done. Your state of play, <laughs> you're untouchable on state of play, and I've yes, always said that. And, <laughs> no uh, one could come close to you on state with, of play. With Life on Mars and the governor off of Walking Dead. Yeah. Uh, where do you stand on music biopics generally, and uh, do you, can you think of any ones that you like? Because it sounds like you dislike them. Recently, I quite liked the Elton John one. Um, yeah, I didn't mind Rocket Man. I thought that was better. Mm. Tonally, I mean, it was a bit wackier. I like that, though. I think people should go down that route more. Just have yeah. fun with it. Um, just be, like, be surreal. Because that, like, I'll tell you what. If you're in the right mood to watch Bohemian Rhapsody, which is basically just, just chewing gum for the brain, it's fine. It's not horrible, like, but it definitely did. It shouldn't have gotten... It de- there isn't. It's not a good performance from Remy Malek. He just overdoes yeah. it to death. It's horrible Definitely. to watch. He's but the me- But the Queen music is good, and if you're in the right mood for it, it can do it. But Rocket Man does so much better because you don't have to zone out because it engages with how ridiculous the idea of it is. It almost on a Dewey Cox level, I think. I don't like how that final concert. You know this huge concert performance has become the ending point for these films at least the ones written yeah. by anthony mccartan it's like i don't like that blueprint 
because well, for it's, me, yeah, I was on. getting towards the end and I was like, am I really going to have to sit through a medley of Whitney Houston? I'm sorry. I'm happy to see her smoke crack and yeah, but... in a bath, but I don't need to sit here and sing three songs in a row. Whitney Houston needs to think about her whole life before she goes on stage. Yeah. Um, no, um, I like. I think it's kind. It's almost. It's going the same way as the superhero movie. Um, in that regard, it's it's a it's a template, and people like it, and they know what to expect. Uh, which is why I'll take you again to bat on the Last Jedi. Which is why I like the Last Jedi because it did aim to surprise you just a little bit. Yeah. Um, the Last Jedi definitely the best music biopic. <laughs> No, but you know what I'm talking about, breaking from templates, so to I speak. I guess, I guess. Yeah, I mean, yeah. the most popular, the the, most, the highest rated music biopic is probably the Mozart one, Amadeus. Oh, well, that's, and that, that's I know, a, a and different that's, class. I know, like. I know, because it's not really, it's like, it's just a kind of drama slash thrillery type thing. It's one of my favorite films just, of all time. And, and they've just chosen, like, you know, famous classical composers to, to slot. Yeah, in. it's not really a biopic. Yeah, that but. that like I saw the writing on the wall for them when I saw Walk the Line and everyone was going nuts for it and I I was just like didn't we just see this last year with Ray I because they were they're basically the same movie those two mm-hmm. um and that was that mold but now yeah we've got the 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 different one that's why Rocket Man was it was again so fun because it is a musical it engages yeah. with it Coal Miner's Daughter is supposed to be very good but I've never seen mm-hmm. it yeah well, what else do you have what's your oh, next thing on your see. list well. Enemy of the show, John Spillane is in Barcelona, and I got awful jealous that he was getting to go to Phenomena to see a film that I uh, was a huge fan of growing up. I watched it a lot of times, and I hadn't watched it in many years, so I just said, feck it, I'll go and see is the man who shot Liberty Valance in Blockbuster. And it was. And, uh, wow, I mean, once again, much like Rosemary's Baby, watching it with older eyes, you, I, like, I got much more to grips with what John Ford was trying to do with this one. So, people who don't know, this is a, a Western John Ford made in 1962, somewhat later in his career, where he went he went black and white and kind of classical storytelling with a bit of revisionist themes. Basically, you've got John Wayne as the hard man in a town and a bandit called Liberty Valance. Um, this is, and it's just before Wyoming got statehood. Liberty Valance played by Lee Marvin. And then a lawyer um, called... Um, I forget, called James Stewart, comes into town and basically tries to establish law in the town. And it revolves around, you know, eventually, spoiler, Liberty Valance does get shot. But it's a real... That's in the tile. Yeah, yeah. It's I mean, it's basically trying to tell the story that I suppose the Wild Bunch tells, but in a classical era, Western era mold. Like, it's like the West is coming to an end. Is there still a place for hard cunts in the world? Basically, it's the, it's asking that kind of question. There's a truly, truly classic scene where James Stewart is waiting tables and uh, Liberty Valance trips him up and dro- uh, drops John Wayne's stake. And there's just you're just watching these three heavyweights just dog it out for control of the scene. But it's also got like Western classic fellas like the like I think Struther Martin is in it. Um, Woody Woody Strode, who's also in what you call it, the Wild Bunch. He's the old fella from the the Wild Bunch. Um, yeah, really, really well worth watching. Again, like, and it's just very interesting the way Ford's career worked out because he flirted with realist revisionism in the likes of The Searchers, which has an objectively bad character at, at its center, um, and there is no place for him in the world. But here it kind of reverted to more sort of romantic storytelling, but with a real eye for history. 
as you can tell, I'm enthusiastic about this sort of stuff. I absolutely fucking loved it. Um, I recommend anybody go out and see it soon. Is this what got you playing Red Dead Redemption 2? No comment? Yes, this is exactly it. Well, it got me Fair watching play. Red Dead re- videos, which in turn got me buying the game. <laughs> Good choice. Well, I stayed with music for my next, uh, my next film experience. And that was uh, a documentary called Meet Me in the Bathroom. I've never even heard of this. Well, it's not about romantic encounters in uh, American truck stop restrooms, as you might be thinking. It's actually about the Damn new it. music scene of the early 2000s. Interpol? Yes, they feature. Who else? Well, it's based on the 2017 oral history by Lizzie Goodman, and uh, it, the film just basically uses a lot of home video and concert footage to explore. It kicks off with The Strokes, because The Strokes did sort of yeah. change the face of the... of, of Music, globally. Yeah, well, music, let's say, globally, yeah, sure. And then the bands that follow, so you've got Yeah, Yeah, Yeah's, Interpol, LCD Sound System. It also, it starts off with the uh, Moldy Peaches, but I'm reluctant to call them a band. <laughs> are, so. you, are, you, are you still pouring scorn on him for forcing me to watch his movie? Is that what it is? Well, your, your best friend, Adam Green, is, he's at the start. He's one of the first people that feature, actually, and he's about 20 years old. At the start of the film. I'd like I mean, to reiterate. A child. It was a good concert, but what he did beforehand was unforgivable. You can't do that to people. Has he learned how to play musical instruments now and can he sing? Uh, I don't know. Yeah, but I mean, he had a band with him. It was a fun gig. Fair play. Well, <laughs> you're, you're such a, a bitch when it comes to music. <laughs> like, yeah. Hey, this, hey this, this is my music. This. This is my music. I remember this time very well. I like all these bands. Uh, I saw them live nu- numerous times, so I got a lot out of this documentary. Mm. I would like to watch it too. I like all those bands, and I think I have seen most of them live as well. Actually, all the ones you mentioned there, I have seen them live, yes. The Strokes come across as like trapped artists desperately trying not to sell out, and it's all controlled by Julian Casablancas, the lead singer, who wrote all the songs. Yeah, like it continues to. Yeah, yeah. Like the lyrics and the music, everything, which is mad. Then you've got the yeah, yeah, yeahs. Their story is mostly reduced to Karen O. Makes like sense. Fighting against society's expectations of a band fronted by a lady. And then like Interpol are just shown as kind of hardworking musicians who sort of hate each other, but they go on to make uh, like really good music. But yeah. There would be my favorite of the bunch that you've mentioned there. But the, Pert- something that's kind of weird about it is like all these bands never lived up to their hype. They never bettered their first album. Yeah, that's probably true. Yeah, yeah, I'd agree. Which is kind of mad. I don't know if that's something of the period. Uh, they, were, they, they exploded. They had all their, their, their best work was, you know, what they came up with when they were all super young, like in their very early 20s. And they could never better that. Well, yeah, I mean, for example, with the Strokes, for with the, the, like the Strokes' first album, it's not even like the songs are good, but it's kind of the the style and the the just how in your face we're a rock band it was for the time because rock music was really on a decline, and uh, I do think they were like certainly the most influential uh, band of that decade for sure. Cause well, the Strokes and the White Stripes kind of had the two sides of the same coin. Yeah, I suppose, but I mean, the White Stripes were very self-consciously arty. I suppose. Mm. Did you uh, did you catch Jack White's Glastonbury performance this year? No, because he saw me Glastonbury in two thousand and five <laughs> with the White Stripes. Yeah, because yeah, like I, I I see him releasing albums. He does concerts in Barcelona sometimes, and I go, man, who is Jack White making music for these days? But I watched the concert and I was like, Probably God himself. damn. 
It's a, it's incredible. Uh, you know, I would, I would love to go see him live after having watched that uh, gig. But um, anyway, yeah, I. But with Inter Interpol, I mean, that first album is just so tight. Yeah, it's just incredible. The what? sections with James Murphy before and during his time as LCD Sound System are probably the most interesting. Uh, just oh. because he's got way more depth to him because he was older when he got started. That's right, yeah. And like this this film, it's it's a fine documentary, but it struggles to kind of create any interconnected narrative because it's it's mainly just these bands reflecting on their individual journeys and experiences. And and like most things, it ends up more of like a treatise on youth than on the era itself because these mm. bands all fed into each other in the scene that they created, but the majority of what you see just feels like people in their early 20s living like they're indestructible. Are we are we too old to appreciate them? Is that what well, it is? As a because twenty year olds are children. Man, myself, yeah. it brought to mind Noah Baumbach's "While We're Young." Great movie, which was scored by none other than James Murphy. No, but it is. It's just like he's watching people in their early twenties and just having that memory of like when you were absolutely carefree and didn't mm. think about much more than what was coming the next weekend or the next night out or whatever it's that exact same energy but i don't know do i want to watch it now <laughs> just well i would say based on for... that addendum you've given it uh but yeah i do love a good music doc you'd say it's worth watching i would say it's for fans only if you're interested in the music and the time period then it's worthwhile but i don't only fans have... interesting I would say, yeah, OnlyFans. Is, this is my OnlyFans. Uh, that's what I would say. But my favorite music doc is definitely Dig. Oh, I was just going to mention Dig. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's, that's, I mean, that's It's the that's, best. That is, that's the classic. And that's people in their early 20s dicking around. But that created a successful narrative structure between two bands. Yes, and also like, it helps uh, the fact that... Jonestown um, and uh, Dandy Warhols. It helps the fact that, like, okay... Dandy Warhol's got a little bit of fame. Like, yeah, they did. I mean, they did pretty well. They yeah, definitely yeah, but, made money off of music. Um, but the Brian Jonestown Massacre were just not famous, oh, really. really. I, 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 so, it was, yeah, no, it was helped they by that because artists. they... Well, they were lunatics, like, and the footage in the... They were lunatics. The, they it, were heroin addicts. Yeah, yeah. And the footage in the documentary is just outrageous. Yeah. I Like, by all accounts, the narrative is a little bit invented. But, I mean, it, it, the film works really well. Yeah, well, this for this film, uh, Meet Me in the Bathroom, has got like about twenty minutes in the film. They're like the plane, a plane has struck the tower of the World Trade Center. So they've really sort of they have a nine eleven angle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're pushing that angle. Then you see okay. Paul Banks from Interpol walking around, like you know, in the dust of Ground Zero, with his black suit getting all going dusty. Like, what What does it all mean? I'm gonna write Jesus. some nonsense lyrics about this. I dislike that. Yeah. That, well, that, and, that bums me out that they included that. And also, that. I just want to say, fuck the moldy peaches. That's it. Thank you. That's my time. Fair enough. I agree. I can agree with that. I watched... Watching Liberty Valance got me interested in John Ford again, and I was looking for films of his that I hadn't seen early as I could. And I ended up watching the first film that he won a Best Director award for, uh, 1935's The Informer. Have you ever heard of this film? Yeah, I I'm, I'm remember the the soundtrack by the artist Snow that went in Farmer. Yep, that's the one. Boom down. That's the same <laughs> film, right? A licky boom boom. Yeah, exactly. That's it. No, this is set in Ireland. It's like um like that other movie, Odd Man Out. It's set during the Irish War of Independence, but they don't refer to like they call the IRA the organization and stuff like that. 
Interestingly enough, though, Respectful. like there's a, there's a lot of actual Irish people in it, and one or two Americans doing accents. But most of the cast is actually Irish. I'd be interested to know where they shot it. Um, it seems to be on studio lots, and it's very Im- influenced. Here comes the, the pretension, folks. It's very influenced by the light, by the German expressionism that would have been going on at the time. So it's all fog and shadows and stuff. Um, the main guy, but like the thing is, so the the gist of the plot, it's basically <laughs> you'll find this funny, but it, there's no other way to describe it. It's crime and punishment. But if it was in Ireland, so have you read Crime and Punishment? Uh, yeah, I think it's cool. <laughs> okay, so what do you think Raskolnikov would have done if he was Irish? Gone to the church and confessed or something? No, I'll get to I'll get to that. So anyway, murdered a priest. What What happens is this guy who's poor and a big dummy. He's basically like Lenny from fucking Mice and Men. Um, was wandering around Dublin and he sees a reward going for his friend who's in the Ra. And then he sees his friend and says that there's no British soldiers around his house. Uh, so he sa- he uh, so he can go and visit his mother and his sister. And then he informs him on him for twenty pounds. And he spends the movie, uh, just being tormented by himself and oh, getting nice. getting completely wankered just just goes around just <laughs> spending the money just wha- like buying everybody dr- drinks are on jippo and every like you know he gets loads of hangers on because everyone wants free chips and beer and stuff like that and he's just just slamming booze um he himself was played by jippo uh, was played by a, a british boxer turned actor called victor mclaughlin his portrayal is a little offensive but he's just a big dummy so it's it's fine but in total like the film is it's it's very good it's pretty entertaining and it's also a pre-code film so it's surprisingly violent and like 1935 jesus so like there like there's a, a part near the start where this guy Jippo sees like his lady try Jippo. <laughs> he's called Jippo. Yeah, Jippo Nolan, King Jippo. Uh he tr- he sees he sees his lady try to um try to basically uh, turn a trick with this rich uh, English gentleman in Dublin city and he punches him and steals his hat. Um, this sounds like anti-Irish propaganda you're watching. <laughs> well, no, because the thing is is like it's not. It's more. It's pro-Irish propaganda, if anything, because okay. the Fair British are, are are quite evil in it. Portrayed and um, and basically, Jippo gets what's coming to him because he's an informer. But also, I mean, Ford himself was a big rahead. It wasn't his only foray sure. into setting films in Ireland. Famously, The Quiet Man, of course. But there's also um, How Green Was My Valley. Uh, anyway, yeah, that was uh, it for the John Ford deep dive. But do, I would expe- expect to he- hear of me watching a few more of his stuff in the next few weeks. I'm interested at this point, and they're all pretty short. I'd like to watch more films about like Ireland and the troubles, but I still haven't seen Wind That Shakes the Barley. That's very I've, good. I've been meaning to do that for forever, but we'll get to it. Was is there anything else that's recommended? Uh, films on the troubles for a good rollicking time. There's always in the name of the father. Um, oh but yeah, it's, I've seen that. It's uh, it wouldn't be the one that I would go into first, to be honest, because it's kind of I don't know. Showy. It doesn't. It, Yes, it is very showy. When the Shakes the Barley is great. Michael Collins is oh, qu- yeah. like quite contested in its message, the but one it's about bi- the astronaut. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> but it's like it is a blockbuster, no, no question. And it's it's like if you cast if you cast uh, Alan Rickman as Eamon De Valera, you are picking oh. a side whether you like it or not. You know what I mean? That's um, great. I forgot Alan Rickman was there. Yeah, I should watch that. I'm sure the last thing I watched was that Ken Loach one. I can't remember what it was called the one from like 1990 or 89 or something and that was meh and i I still need to watch 71 71 is very good i I quite liked that oh yeah there's a fantastic one 
It's called um, Elephant by Alan Clark. It's I think it's a, a short film. I think it might only be 30 minutes long. But um, <laughs> That's right up my alley. That's yeah. all we need to solve the troubles. Just it's basically Gus Van Sant stole the idea for his film Elephant. Seriously? That's why it has the same name. I yeah, yeah. going to make some well, sto- stole the idea. It's it's bit like you know it's basically he took the idea and applied it to the Columbine shootings. It's basically just a, a lone gunman going around the city mm. sh- uh, shooting people. It doesn't talk anything about politics, but it it was shot on location in Northern Ireland, and it's just it's just When's about it the violence. I think nineteen. I think it's in the eighties. Um, it was made. Of course, then there's the Crying Game, which is pretty good. Oh, Paul Greengrass's film Bloody Sunday, very good. Oh yeah, I'm a big fan of that. Also, Need to watch that. Uh, Crying yeah, yeah. game, I remember. Sure, sure. Um, hunger, hunger is good. Good vibrations about the record store, also good. Um, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's plenty out there. We 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 can talk off mic. You've seen Belfast, actually, haven't you? Yeah. So that's a yeah. That's about that's the prods. A, yeah. <laughs> the most uh, the most civilized form of uh, of <laughs> of trouble. Yeah, yeah. No, I protested outside screenings of that in <laughs> Barcelona. No prods on screen. I'm in the middle of a huge thunderstorm here. I don't know if you can hear any of it in the background. I can't hear Maybe it at not. all. Good. Solid. Because it's like there's lightning outside my window. Have you got anything else for the chopping block? I do indeed. I've got one more thing to talk about. It's the first episode of a TV series. Uh, I'll talk about it now and then I'll come back to it again when it's finished. But the oh, here first we go. episode of HBO's The Last of Us. I almost don't want to watch this for the amount of acclaim it's getting. Well, okay, so just for anyone who doesn't know what this is, 20 years after a zombie outbreak, let's call it zombies. That's yeah, let's just, just, yeah, let's yeah, just yeah. zombies, basically. But So courtesy of a Cordyceps Mushrooms uh, infection, you've got uh, two main characters, Joel, who's like a grizzled Texan military vet who needs to transport a teenage girl, Ellie, across what remains of the United States. And it stars Pedro Pascal as Joel and Bella Ramsey from Game of Thrones as as Ellie. There are nine episodes in total. So this first episode was originally two episodes that got stitched together because the ending of the first one wasn't strong enough, they felt. HBO gave notes to the makers. It's created by Neil Druckmann, who made the, the PlayStation games that it's based on, and Craig Mazin, who made Chernobyl. And superhero movie. And uh, Eurotrip, I think. Mm. I feel like he also made Eurotrip. Wrote oh, the no, Hangover no, no, movies, no, too. No, that he didn't do Eurotrip. Sorry, yeah, he did the Hangover. He did some of the Hangovers. He did some fairly poor comedy. But when he created Chernobyl, uh, people started taking note of this guy who c- could create incredibly harrowing drama. Mm. And so The Last of Us, as I said, this is an adaptation of a, a series of PlayStation games, two games. The first season of the show is going to be just adapting the first game. There are some minor changes. I, I've played, you've, you've played the first Last of Us game. Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's a fairly faithful adaptation, but so they I've have heard. made some minor changes, mainly around like character motivation and shifting some events. But this is the first adaptation I can think of of a story game. You know, because normally when you're watching some adaptation, it's of a book or some other property that you haven't seen represented visually. And so Mm. you're just, you're kind of, you're just thinking like, oh, I've always wondered what these people would look like. Or when they adapt a game, it's 
you know, something like Mario or something. <laughs> Super yeah, Mario. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know, know what you're. I know what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. just it's it's insane to see a physical adaptation of something that you've already seen represented. I guess the closest thing would be like an adaptation of like a comic book or you know, like a graphic novel or something. That's kind of the closest that you're getting, but even then like you've already heard these characters speak you've already seen them move etc etc so it's a completely different form compared to you know other media being turned into tv series or films well i would yeah yeah the the strange thing is is like have you ever heard of uh, the comic book saga by brian yeah I, i i heard of it i heard it's like i mean it's it's highly rated it's incredible um it's a space opera basically and but like something about it the art and like one of the like the spaceship they used is a tree the some of the antagonists have strange weird robot heads it's done in such a way that they could try to adapt it but comics is the peak of this story very similar mm. with um neil gaiman's the sandman actually it's just it belongs in the comic books i i feel but i'm wondering is that the same with something like this like is the the optimum way to experience this story the game I think the one difference here is that they can really focus in on the quieter character moments. Stuff where, like, gamers would maybe be, like, pressing a button, like, fucking skip, skip, skip. I want to get to shooting people in the head. And I've heard from some some of the reviewers who've seen half or a full season have said that, like, it's those quieter moments that are stronger. There's quite a lot of action in the... you know, in this first episode. So we're, you haven't really, I mean, Pasca, Pedro Pascal's great. Bella Ramsey seems to have the Ellie attitude. Like she's got like a sort of like fuck you attitude, which is, seems good. And it'll be interesting to see how that relationship develops over the season. I think the one benefit of it is that the series captures some of that Station Eleven atmosphere of they can afford, as far as I'm aware, what I've heard is that there's a bit more flashback and mm. they flesh out some. Uh, they flesh out a bit more of the history in this, okay. which the games don't really touch because they're much more concerned with like pushing forward. Whereas a TV show can sort of like revisit the past a little bit. To your knowledge, are they planning on uh, making more games? Yeah, I mean the next Naughty Dog Last of Us thing that's coming out is supposed to be a big factions multiplayer game um, using like huge Last of Us maps. I think they want to continue the IP, so I would expect like a Last of Us 3 eventually. Mm. And I think the idea for the TV series is to just continue going along with the games, which I don't know if they'll maybe take a season between games 1 and 2, but Last of Us 2 I thought was great, but it was really controversial. And if it is turned yeah. into a TV show the way it is, like it is it's fucking depressing (laughs) it's very depressing i one is dark but Mm. two is like super dark yeah no i've heard and i have spoken to both sides some people do not like that twist in that game yeah it's a very there's there's, they they made a quite a bold move move. it's very bold move but it would work better in uh in a tv series because you can you can cut back and forth like you can show different points of view. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, in, yeah. In that game, you you play as two different characters that are you have you you're just you're stuck playing as someone a lot of people don't like. I watched um, two films, two films, two series uh, since we last spoke. Mm. Um, ate them up. They're as you know, this kind of thing is right up my street. First of all, I watched. I'll go through this quickly because I've uh, yeah. We've, t- we've talked about one of these before. Uh, watch season five of Bosch. I mean, it's just, it's fine. It's, you know, it's it's nicely flavored chewing gum for the eyes. You know exactly what's going to happen all the time, which is She's great. watching it for the first time. 
Yeah, yeah, I haven't seen all of Bosch. I, I take it a bit at a time because, yeah. like as I said, it's not like I don't really care too much about what happens in two seasons' time. It's just about the energy you get from watching it, I suppose. It's, you know, it's like, I don't know, going to a restaurant, you know, or something like that. There's nothing surprising from watching Bosch. He's basically, but it, it the, like, you know, the tropes make me laugh a lot. So basically, for people who don't know, I highly recommend this show. It's all on Amazon. Uh, Titus Welliver plays... A detective called Harry Bosch, who, you know, mostly plays by the rules, probably too much, and that's why some people don't like him. And uh, it's just, I just know it's, do you know what's very funny is the fact that, like, so many people hate Bosch, even though, like, he's clearly a good guy. Like, <laughs> like people just, ah, fucking Bosch. Oh, they hate him. But um, Lance Reddick is in this. You know that, right? Yeah, he's, I mean, I've, where am I now? I think I've seen the first three seasons. I can't remember where I've left off. Well, he's the police commissioner in this yeah. series, and there's a bit of crooked business. And it's just funny to see because, of course, he plays... Um, name? Daniels. Cedric yeah, Daniels. Yeah. He plays Cedric Daniels in The Wire, who is just unbendable, you know? Um, but uh, his, char- his character in Bosch is... It's like watching Cedric Daniels be a little bit corrupt. It's, quite, it's, it's unusual. But anyway, yeah, I had great... Ca- uh, I think this show's like watching The Wire with like poorer writers. And I like Bosch, but that's what mm. it is. It's like you get Wire actors... And slightly, I mean, no, I mean, The Wire is one of the greatest things of shows of all time. Well, yeah, yeah, the greatest for sure. Pieces of art of all time. So that's, I mean, it, it's not a huge criticism to say that it's a lower standard. But that's no, it isn't. What this is. We talked about this before because the difference between The Wire and something like Bosch is in The Wire, they after one scene ends, they cut to uh, other characters in another location on another part of the story. Yeah. Whereas Bosch goes into a room and says something like, blah, 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 has a short conversation and the person says, you need to go to the docks. And then it cuts, next scene, he's arriving at the docks. Like, that's the difference in the in the screenwriting. Yeah. And as I say, it's not a huge knock on Bosch. I mean, it's No, fun. no, no, it's no. Enjoyable. But I mean, it is what it is. It's an airport book yeah. done in episodes. But um, yeah, it's, it's just the, the tropes of it sort of make me laugh, I suppose. I, I'm still getting the giggles out of those. The other thing I watched, because the third season came out and all the seasons came out on the Spanish platform, Mobistar Plus, uh, with Spanish subtitles, and I knew my wife would like them. So I decided to rewatch season one of Happy Valley, uh, because three is out now, uh, So and I've never seen two, so gonna be binging those with the wifey over the next few days but uh you watch this around the same time as me i watched season one of happy valley yeah and still haven't checked out two i mean it's just it's it's absolutely as terrific as you remember it's phenomenal writing great performances it's it, <laughs> it's funny as well of course you know watching somebody watch something that you love do you know what i mean <laughs> um because it, we're just it's, looking over all the time going does he like it no, 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 it's not that. Opinion. It's just, it's just funny because she, like, I don't know. She's not jaded by how much TV she's watched, so right. she has genuine reactions. Do you know what I mean? Like, you and I would watch it and go, "Oh yeah, of course, Steve Pemberton That's is a u- very clever." Of course, Steve Pemberton is a useless tool in it. That's what. Of course, yeah. he's gonna fuck it up. He, uh, like, but, but like, Belena's watching it, going, "Ah, oh, what an asshole! I hate this guy." And it's a genuine reaction. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> um, but yeah, fan, and but startlingly violent. I had I had not recalled just how violent this show is. Very much looking forward to getting uh, stuck into season two and three. Anybody who hasn't seen Happy Valley, check it out. Well, I think that takes us to talking about Ruben Östlund's Triangle of Sadness. Yes. Needless to say, I was a very big fan of this. What about you? I was, indeed. I thought maybe we should just briefly go through Ostland's filmography. I've seen the last three. 
His first film was in 2004. It was called The Guitar Mongoloid. I've been called worse. (laughs) And in 2008, he made a film called Involuntary, which is noted for its long takes. He likes a long uh, take. Apparently, that's due to his background as a skiing film director, where a cut would indicate failure. Hmm. That's the most Swedish thing anyone's ever said. Go on. Yeah, he he got big into skiing as a teen, and then he got paid to, to make films. And apparently, you just need to follow follow skiers down the down the hill, down the slope. Apparently, are you looking at a picture of this man right now? He's yeah, he's a handsome, but he's a handsome. I, fellow. Is he the best looking film director in the world? <laughs> I think you just—that's what you think you look like. That's your ideal. You, you want to be <laughs> Ruben Östlund. I mean, he Sorry, also I did his he, name wrong for a second there. He also looks like he could be a very effective serial killer. Um, yes, he 100% has killed people. There's no question there. His, his, uh, his next film was in 2011. It's called Play. I, I want to see this one. It's quite, it was quite controversial in Sweden. It's probably already um, shot. Like Triangle of Sadness was shot two years ago. No, this, I'm saying this is from uh, 2011. Oh, right. Okay. It's called Play. This was his third film. Uh, it's inspired by actual court cases. It portrays a group of black boys who rob a smaller group of white boys by means of a psychological game. So I'm sold of, on that. That sounds yeah, great. Yeah, went into yeah. It's like it's kids with a with a, a race element that in Sweden was it was very controversial. Sweet. For what was going on? And then next up was 2014's Force Majeure. I haven't seen it. I'm aware of it's what great. it is. It was remade as well with Will Ferrell. I think that's right. And Julia Louise Dreyfus. <laughs> Mm, yeah who needs it like why anyway go on and then 2017's the square which won the palm door and was uh the first film we talked about on the podcast which i think we both enjoyed it was funny yes i recently uh, listened to listen to that episode again um because clay bang was in that uh, show i really enjoyed bad sisters and um i have to say we haven't developed the pod even slightly since then well, I, I used to play sound. Remember, I used to play clips. <laughs> oh, that's true. You did. Effects. Yes, that's used true. Used to write songs. Used to do all kinds of jazz. But so, listening to it uh, got me back. It like had me remembering um, how funny the square is, and uh, I think Triangle of Sadness is. I I, I I'm not. I think all his his films that I've seen are. It's not like The Sopranos where they're funny bits. These are comedies. They're comedy start to finish. Like The Square is a comedy. It's a bizarre comedy, but it it's purely for laughs. It's comedy. I mean, comedy here because he allows a take to go on for so long. He lets things play out. It's But it's character and it's situation blended with character, not like funny quips or anything. It's just a no, it's farc- like- farcical situations being played to their extremes. Yeah, and like characters playing it super straight that you can't just help but laugh at the insanity of it all. <laughs> like it's like the opening scene of this had me laughing a lot about the two models arguing over who was paying for whatever. That I mean it's it's funny but it's it feels very real. Well, it's based on a real thing. Yeah, yeah, it was something that his, him and his his wife had that conversation. But it's I mean it's I can see it from both sides, but then it's also like an it's it's interesting that the female character Yaya comes out and she says like I was just manipulating you. Yeah, yeah. That's I when she became my like, favorite of that couple. I hated her 2 minutes before that and I was like after that I was like respect. And then as the film progresses, of course, um the boy is just a I mean, just a just a giant pile of moron. He's just such oh, a detestable like moron. He's very likable though. Yeah, for, detestable is the wrong word, but he is a moron. Yeah, he's a moron. He's a model. But yeah, why, yeah. why why male models? I don't know, he's having a pop at male models. 
Mark Kermode wasn't too hot on this. Okay, now you you do the explanation, and then I'll ask why male models, and you go, are you you kidding? I I just told you. Okay. No, we're not doing it. We're not doing the thing. We're not doing the thing. What's that from? Zoolander, man. Oh, I forgot. Terrible. I can't. uh, Yeah, I think I've only seen Zoolander once ever. Shall we go through the plot a little bit? Let's go through the plot a little bit. So this film is split into three parts. The first part is about Carl and Yaya, who are models and influencers. Yaya's the lady, so therefore makes a lot more money. Is it like three times the salary or something? I think he says four. Four times times the salary of a male model. It starts with Carl at a casting with lots of topless men, and they are being interviewed by an incredibly camp host who is... The the major part I remember about this is he's talking about, like, if you work for a brand, uh, like a cheap brand like H&M, you'll be smiling. And if it's an explain- a high-end brand, then you're going to be frowning. And he's like, H&M, Balenciaga, H&M, Balenciaga. I'm sorry, I've just read something. What's that? Which you probably knew already. Yaya's dead. Yes. Oh, wow. Sorry, I, I got distracted by that you for a second. You just got it now. Oh, man. Yeah. yeah well, that's... I just, uh, I, that was the biggest bummer of this film. I went, because I didn't, I didn't look up anything mm. before watching it. And then. Me neither. When I finished the film, I, I clicked on some of the actors and Charlby Dean. Because I, I remember back at the time, it was back in August. I remember reading the article. Yeah, like, yeah, me oh, too. One of the actors from um, Ruben Oslin's new film has died. But there's no more of a bummer. And you've just experienced it right now. But finishing this film and finding out that one of the stars, the lady who plays Yaya, she died uh, back in August and a sort of... Very, very yeah. quickly. She got ill. She was in a car crash in 2008 and she had, she had like serious health consequences from that. So she was, she was very fragile. I think she had her spleen removed and then, so she, she got ill quite frequently and then she was at a restaurant, I think, and just started feeling unwell and within 24 hours she was dead. But of absolute, what a, what a kick in the balls to find right. out that the star is dead. Call it friendo, very late to the press on this one, but I'd like to say this isn't the reason I'm saying this. Uh, she was definitely my favorite character in the film and I thought she was excellent. I'm, I'm, she was like, great. Yeah, I, I think she would have had a huge career after this, to be she honest. Is, she graduated. We're going to give her the highest award we can give, which is the Call It Friendo Friend of the Show Award. Yes, she is a friend. Friend of the show. A friend of the show. She has passed on to show friendship. Yeah. Oh, no, wow. That is a bummer. Is, is a, that is the biggest bummer of the whole thing. Is Sorry sorry if you're just finding this out now. If anyone who's listening to this, yeah, Charlby Dean, unfortunately, this one of the stars died shortly after its, uh, after its uh, screening. Why couldn't Woody Harrelson die? Well, I'm, I'm glad Woody Harrelson's still alive. Yeah, me too. I like anyway. Woody Harrelson. Yes. Anyway, back to the plot. So, yeah, so that's it. A moment of uh, we'll take a moment of silence just for Yaya. But so Carl, Carl and Yaya, uh, they are boyfriend and girlfriend. There's a fashion show. Carl goes to watch Yaya a fashion show, and this this part feels very much like the square. There's people getting bumped off the front row of the audience. Yeah. So it's kind of just showing this the world of fashion. And then there, I remember there was a beautiful shot from the back of the room where you're watching the fashion show happen that feels very Ruben Ostlundy. Yeah. I mean, it, it will say it more so about another uh, sequence later in the film, but I mean, this guy is the real deal. I, like his, script, his scripts are fantastic, but my God, can he... The camera like, put, works great. 
put together a film. You you know what sequence I'm talking about, and we'll talk about it when we get to it. But I mean, he's yeah. an incredible craftsman. I mean, and not to mention, I think we said it about the square. There's a sequence in the square that is amongst the most affecting things I've ever seen in a film. Mm. You know, the monkey man bit. <laughs> like, oh, it's, yeah. it's just Very insane Natalia. to watch. So Yaya and Carl go to dinner together and uh, this part feels very, very real. Yaya doesn't pick up the bill and as she previously promised the night before that she was going to pay for dinner and Carl and her end up fighting and uh, they're just having a very realistic sort of argument about the roles of, of gender roles in a relationship and the argument continues on into the taxi. Again, lovely camera movements in the backseat of the taxi sweeping from side to side. Yeah. Just sort and of like rotating on an axis. Just Yeah, it's like a hidden camera in the taxi. Yeah. Where have I seen that before? Hmm. I don't know. Probably in your video searches. So the argument is Carl saying that we should, you know, they should reject society's gender roles in their relationship. But then Yaya's asking, like, why does he care about money? She earns more than him. But when she puts her card, uh, she puts her card down in the restaurant, it, it gets, uh, yeah. her uh, card gets declined. So she's obviously living uh, outside her means. Indeed, yeah. And then he he does, in fact, foot the bill. And uh, you, it's, I don't know, it's a strange moment because I'm on his, I'm on Carol's side, I am. But his power of rhetoric is such that you just, he's just, oh, shut up, you absolute moaning bitch. <laughs> like, I'm on Yaya's side by the end of it, for sure. Well, she makes a good point, which is, I mean, for her, I guess it's very cynical, but it's a Ruben Oslin film, so I would expect nothing less. She's True. like... When I get pregnant, my my world as a model is finished. So the only off ramp for me in this life is to become a trophy wife. Yeah. So she's very clear. She's like, our relationship is not going to work out, but we both benefit from it. We enjoy being with each other and having sex, etc. And we build each other's followers on social media. So it's like a relationship of convenience. Yeah. And then Carl's like, I'm going to win you over to make you love me. I mean, well, yeah, because the taxi driver gives him that sage advice. Yeah, he says you need to go get that, go get that. Yeah, exactly. He yeah, so they could. That's but that's that's the conclusion that they come to when they get they they argue in the lift and then they reconcile in the room and Carl is like, "I'm gonna make you, I'm going to make you love me." And then boom, we're at, we're into part two, which is the yacht. Yes, indeed. So we're on a, a, a basically a yacht full of oligarchs and this this and arms dealers. Uh, piloted by Woody Harrelson, who's a who's a Marxist, as you do, as you should be. We see them setting up the yacht at the start of their journey. This this cruise, we've got the Western crew that's all fired. Oh, it's up such a money. great scene! That's such a great. <laughs> it's 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 a very Ruben Ostlin scene as well. Um, it's just yeah, the the uh, let's say the I don't know the captain of the staff, so to speak. Yeah, Paula. Giving uh, all her staff a pep talk, uh, very Wolf of Wall Street that scene yeah. actually, and she's like, "And remember, if we're nice, they're going to give us tips, money, 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 money." Yeah, yeah, it's very funny. Um, and then you cut to the Filipino crew under deck, just mm. downstairs, and they're just normal. Yeah, yeah. They just they're look ju- like normal people. Like they're like the most normal people. In, the, in, they're in, in a the staff room film. reading a magazine. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And they're just having like normal interactions. Like, all right. How's it going? And then you've got the, the, the chefs in the kitchen and so forth. Uh, yeah. But yeah, the general policy on this uh, cruise is whatever one of the guests asks for, uh, they get it immediately. 
the look on that girl's face later on where the the old wealthy lady is saying like you should come in for a swim in the yeah pool. oh my and god she's got, it's like, incredible. The most, uh, that's i've never seen better face acting than her yeah. smiling but her like her brow creasing of just like i, I like she's just is fucking torn to pieces and she's scared to say no to this crazy old lady yeah she's great as well actually who's she they're all good i mean there's yeah. they're they're all sort of uh character actors and just feel quite real a lot of these uh the the, the minor characters in the film next up we've got um there's the captain's dinner well, we've got some other little. We've got some little scenes we can touch on before that. There's uh, well, the character introductions, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. Shirtless guy uh, who gets fired. Who, yeah, yeah, and Carl are on the yeah. Back Carl of the gets boat him fired. Get he uh, this this hunky hunky hairy guy gets fired. You've got Clementine and Winston who are introduced as the names of the uh, Churchill Churchill family. Uh, they're they're arms dealers, and they talk about how ha- their hand grenades are bringing democracy. You've got the lady who's had a stroke, and all she can say is "in the clouds" in German, "in den Vulcan." Yeah, there's a like their the, their their choice of um, rich people. I mean, it's it's pantomime. They're using archetypes. You're, you've got arms dealers and oligarchs and a tech giant. You know what I mean? That's, a, that's the probably like if there is pushback against Ruben Ostland here, it's like the satire is on the so nose. On the nose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It totally. Feels at its worst, it comes across as sort of I don't know. I feel it feels like it's got something deeper to say than it does. I mean, it's got something to say about gender roles and classism and social structures, but. But it's having a big uh, laugh. That's the fu- like. Yeah, that's. I mean, that's what carries it. That's what carries it. Is that it's genuinely funny. It's a lot better than like Adam McKay's. I feel like, um, yeah, efforts in that region. Uh, yeah, I feel like, like actually, the tone of his films kind of echo something I was saying to you last week, which is that basically, what a not funny exchange in the modern world would be. I would like you to call me uh, they and them. Okay, it's not funny, but it's the way it should be. What's funny is people going, call me this, and somebody going, no, and another person going, okay, I absolutely will. That's what's funny. It's all so ridiculous. So I don't think he's necessarily trying to make a point. I think he's just looking, like, I think that, like, it's almost a satire on the audience to choose those kind of characters for your on-the-nose evil rich people. Like, you know, it, like, if you're looking too deeply into this, like, the, particularly the third act, it's insane. It's a, it's a nuts movie. Like, it's totally mm. ridiculous. It's, like... It's. I think its main point is much like with Force Majeure and uh, the Square. Its main point is: isn't this ridiculous? Aren't we ridiculous? So, because I so Kermode they, was complaining about that as an on the nose part of satire, but I ju- I just don't buy that. I think yeah, it's I an out. I you. I think that you make a fair point. It's not necessarily that Ruben Ostlund's going like, oh look at this. This is, and I think he has actually made that point that it's more about if he's satirizing anything, it's the system not the people he's not saying like oh rich people are evil i think it could just be yeah because you like the rich people by the end it's more satirizing like i mean if you're in power and you have everything you're probably going to become a bit of a shite bag hence the yeah ending. that's it yeah 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 totally that's the movie yeah so and then a few the, other things just before oh, the character the introductions captains. i suppose yeah yeah we've got yarmo the sort of middle-aged tech guy flirting with the ladies who gets his photo taken and he's delighted and he offers to like buy them Rolexes and everything for 
The captain, Woody Harrelson, is drinking the whole time. He's in his room. He won't come out. There's the Russian, I think she's Russian, uh, old lady who wants everyone to get in the pool. And then she insists on every single member of the crew going down a big slide into the sea. And the chef is like, the food's going to go bad if we all leave now. And that will play a very big part in the next scene, which is the captain's dinner. Yeah, this is uh, just incredible. This is what I mean by the craft of this, like how well this is stitched together. I think it's like a 20 minute scene and just camera shifting angles you feel like you're sound editing it's incredible Mm. Uh, and it's hilarious and it climaxes with uh, the oligarch doing shots with woody harrelson's marxist captain i also quite like the fact that he gets a hamburger and fries yeah when everyone else is eating uh rotten octopus which makes them spew everywhere there's a lot of stand by me style vomiting and then as you say uh Woody Harrelson's captain and the Russian oligarch end up having this back and forth conversation where they're getting wasted, throwing quote famous quotes at each other, which they're just the best part of that is they're just looking at their phones and yeah, yeah. like googling quotes. Yeah, yeah, it's funny. So it's like a back and forth, like a Twitter back and forth type thing. And um, they're, they're they're having a they're having a gay old time, and, and then, then they also, go on the intercom, which yeah, is Russians, hilarious. <laughs> the Russian guy's like, "The boat is sinking." Yeah, <laughs> <And> everyone, <laughs> attentions, and everyone shats it unsurprisingly and starts putting on their life jackets. But that made me like that made me like like really like him because I think yeah, what's funny. the what's funny the point guy. in having more money than God if you're not just gonna yeah. fuck around like you know? I, I thought that was hilarious. He's crushing it. He's crushing it. And then at the same time, you see the Filipino staff cleaning up all the vomit. Just again, this is like normal day. Everyone mm. else is like, because there's a huge storm and you get the sense like the boat is going to go down or something. And the Filipino staff are just like, yeah, it's fine. It's normal. And then some pirates attack. Yes. Mm. A bit of a wild card in the movie. We've no idea, by the way, where the boat is or anything, do we? No, it was filmed, um, the boat that they used belonged to Aristotle Onassis and Jackie Kennedy. It's called the Christina O. Oh, they wow, yeah, yeah, I've heard of that. Greek islands. The rest of the film was shot on sound stages in Sweden in Trollhattan, which is known as Trollywood. That's where Lars von Trier filmed, like, Dancer in the Dark and Dogville and all the things in the studio scenes. Mm, okay. <clears throat> but, yeah, we don't know where it is, but, like... It's filmed uh, around Greek islands. Uh, Anyway, yeah, then a hand grenade blows up the arms dealers and the boat begins to sink and the following group end up on the shore. So we've got Paula, who's the uh, captain of the staff, uh, pretty much. Um, Yeah, I guess uh, she's like the head of the crew or something. I don't know what her her job title is, yeah. We've got uh, the oligarch. Head of staff, she's called. Carl and Yaya make it, and who else is on it? Oh, the Yarmo. The, the yeah, that's the tech billionaire guy. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the next the pirate. Morning, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. But he's not a pirate, is he? He's not a pirate. Yeah, he's, yeah. He, he's black. Yeah, he's, that's, that's very he, funny. Where he bit. says he worked in the. Did he say he works in the engine room or something? Something like and, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, but the, he does. Uh, he does. The uh, the Russian oligarch, I think, is the guy who calls him a pirate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's very, that's very funny. Um, and then the next morning, one of the lifeboats washes up with Abigail inside it. Um, mm. And there's this wonderful little scene where Paula starts to, tries to Ugh. tries to re-engage the on-boat relationship between her and Abigail. Her as the boss basically hand out water to all these people. But Abigail very quickly realizes, no, fuck that. 
because she's able to catch fish and start a fire and nobody's able to do anything. And I think the thing I like about that is that, so yeah, Abigail at first is kind of like just reluctantly going along with it of like, yeah, okay, Paula's my boss. She was my boss on the boat, etc. So I'll go along with it. But then she flips it around because she's the only one who's able to make a fire to cook the catch the food, cook the food, do all that, clean the octopus, etc. Sing the team tune, write the team tune. <laughs> exactly. But then the thing that I like is that Paula switches and gets on board with her. Yeah. It doesn't end up of like the yeah, yeah. one who was previously the boss ends up being tortured. No, she immediately is like, yeah, oh, yeah. okay, she's the captain. And they become like, they work closely together. Yeah, yeah, it's what makes sense. And then, um, yeah, so the three ladies uh, opt to sleep in the lifeboat. And then when they're outside, the pirate, even though he's not a pirate, and Carl eat a packet of pretzel sticks. Pretzels, because they're bad boys. Criminals. And and then the next day, Abigail comes back and opts to uh, punish them for it. But at this point, she begins taking sexual favors off Carl and has him sleep in the lifeboat with her. And Carol promises, yeah, yeah, that he won't do any sex stuff with her. But, I mean, it's assumed it pretty much starts immediately. And then things get settled on this island. There's very funny bits where um, the 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 whistle. Yeah, that's so funny. I just think that is, like, some of the the most fun banter I can think of is just so every time Carl comes out of the little uh, lifeboat because he's been shagging abigail the guys on the on the beach the other guys start blowing the whistle so that people know that he's like coming out so that they can all sort of look at him and then he goes after them and tries to just get the whistle back off of them but that's just the most <laughs> it's it's very just, well played just as well having fun it's, yeah, yeah. I, I was laughing and smiling just going like that just looks like they're having such a good time yeah and then like um yeah, whatchamacallit, the pirate and the oligarch become friends. He's there shaving him, and yeah, he're he's like, oh, you a, are you a pirate? Razor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, um, yeah, it's, it's banter. It's, it's having great a great old time. But I do think they're like, despite what I said about this being pure satire, I do think by way of the satire, there's a nice point sort of made there that I do... Ruben Oslin seems like my kind of guy, basically. I think he's basically saying, yeah, probably most people are all right, aren't they? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, he's... He's be he's he's accused of cynicism. I guess I don't see it that much. Maybe because uh, I don't. I know, we're we're Scottish and Irish. I mean, mm. that's enough to be like. No, it seems fine. <laughs> this is all very normal. Yeah, but I also think he likes his characters. I even think, God bless him, he likes old. Uh, I, I, actually, you didn't like, but I quite liked Clay Bang's character from the Square. I know because I've listened to the episode recently enough. But well, um, you know better than me because I've forgotten a lot. We've watched a lot of films since then. I mean, I remember enjoying the. I thought he was. I remember he's a bit of a shite bag for throwing the kid down the stairs. But yeah, that which is, is it is that is shocking behavior. But he's very human. I think is the point. Mm. I think he's fully realized. Probably actually, the characters in this are less fully realized than his character in the square. So you spend so much time with him in the square. He's the he's on. He, I think he's in every scene. But um, they, like, basically, I don't know. I'm basically saying by the end of the thing, even there's no none of the typical plot stuff you expect from your desert island scenario take no, place. No, because I mean, the next the, everyone the just next, gets on with it. The next important uh, thing that happens is there's an animal that's been spooking them while they, you know, in the middle of the night, they all shat themselves at a certain point because they heard this animal making noises. And then Yarmo and a few others go to kill it. It turns out it's a donkey. Mm. And Yarmo has to beat it to death. <laughs> has to beat it to death with its own shoes. But it's like, at that point, when you find it, I mean, donkeys, I think, don't 
typically live in the wild on desert yeah 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 exactly so it's it's starting to lay the seeds for for what's coming in the ending of like this is not just some oh we forgot the mute lady well no i mentioned her oh did you oh never mind sorry yeah no no i introduced her they're starting to hint at what's coming but uh it was also a female donkey that got its head smashed in with a rock so that's second donkey i've seen brutally murdered on screen in the last uh couple yeah. of weeks it's a rough old time for donkeys in <laughs> yeah and then next up i believe is a uh, yaya says she wants to go for on a hike Just to the other side that, of the there's island there's a guy that turns there so the, the the mute lady is by herself and there's a a, a guy who come turns up who's selling things and then it's very clear that they're in some populated area which has tourists because there's a, a guy trying to sell tourist items, but mm. she she can only repeat her phrase again and again, her yeah. clouds thing. And then at the same time, Yaya and Abigail are going over to the other side of the island to see what if they can find a way off. Yeah, and getting along quite well together, it seems. And then mm. um, they discover that they're actually in... Uh, on a resort, they see this elevator and they're like, oh my God, thank God. And Abigail seems to consider murdering Yaya uh, so she can keep her powerful position. Um, and then Yaya says, I oh, know you'll be my assistant. And she hesitates a little. And then we just cut to Carol legging it through the jungle and then the film ends. Now, what do you think of that ending? Of What's with Carol legging it? That's the only part I don't get. Well, I've seen a few different, I've seen a few different interpretations of that. One of them being that because Carl and Abigail had a conversation earlier where he was like, like, we should just be together. Yeah. We should, I should break up with Yaya and we should be together. So there was some suggestion that maybe he's after, maybe he then came into contact with this, with the salesman, the tourist seller guy and was like, oh, this is a populated area. And he started putting it together in his head, mm. slowly going like, wait, Abigail might try and kill Yaya when she finds out that this is like a resort and she might have, she might have to go back to her old life. Or there was another suggestion could be that like the donkey, the donkey like took a long time to die after being hit with the rock. So it could be that he heard uh, Yaya screaming. And so he's running to like, he's also running through like brush that is scratching his face. So he doesn't mm. care about his face anymore, which as a model was something he was protecting. Mm. Um, so it could be something like that. Or else it could be like he's running away from Abigail. He's <laughs> trying to fuck him up. That was the third option. I would say it's the first of those three. Yeah, I think so too, because I, I got the sense that like it was happening maybe at the same time, like he was running to just trying to stop her. But I, I might like the I think the ending is very clear. I mean, I I think Abigail <laughs> smashes Yaya's head and I don't think there's any question. I don't I don't think it's an open ending. Do you not? No, I mean, the, the actress who plays Abigail early on in interviews, she said yeah, like, my character 100% smashes Yaya's head in. But then after Char- after Shelby Dean died, um, she started saying, like, well, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I mean, who knows, really? Who knows what happens? Which is, you know, I, that's, like, a tasteful way of doing it. But I just think, I think it's so clear when Yaya says that line of, like, you could be my, could assistant. Be my assistant. Yeah, because yeah, yeah. Because the, the, the hesitation is before that. She mm. hesitates when she said, like, she when Yaya says, like, no, I can do stuff, something for stuff for you, and that's yeah. when she hesitates. She's like, oh, okay, maybe it could be something good. And she's like, you know, you could be my assistant. Yaya's a fucking yeah, model and influencer. Right. She doesn't need it. Carl is her assistant. 
She does not need an assistant. She already, her credit card's getting declined. Yeah, you're right. So that's where Abigail then resolutely is like, I need to fucking bash this donkey's head in. <laughs> Shall we Dean RIP? Indeed. Friend of the show. All right. Well, that was a fantastically enjoyable film. Looking forward to the next uh, Ruben Oslin film in 100 episodes, shall we say? Oh, yeah. The ending, uh, music choice as well, similar to the use of uh, Justice's song in Square. Hmm. They used um, We've Lost Dancing by Fred again, which is which uh, I hadn't a, heard before, a but song I, I, I was uh, turned on to by old uh, Cora Benzi, enemy of the show Cora Benzi. Does Cora Benzi listen? No, no, no. No. But she's still an enemy. Up yours, Cora There's Benzi. no danger of her listening to this, but um, yeah, she, she turned me on to Fred again, and that's what they used at the end. Yeah, yeah. So I yeah, shazammed it as it was playing. Yeah. Thought that's a good song. Anyway, the fuck only- this, huh? The only negative I'd say about this is it maybe sort of does... It's two and a half hours. It maybe does start to drag a little. I didn't feel that. I'll say that. I didn't feel that. I was pretty engaged the whole way through. So there. Oh, the only other things I wanted to say, Dolly DeLeon, who played Abigail, she's uh, she's signed with uh, big agents after Cannes, and she's going to go on and do stuff. She's a 53-year-old Filipina lady. And she's, she's mostly acted in the Philippines, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But she is very good in this, to be fair. Um, and the other point of note that I enjoyed was Woody Harrelson talking about JFK, because there were always rumors about his dad, Charles, being... Uh, that's right, yeah. The, allegedly being one of the one of the three tramps who were photographed on that day in dallas yeah yeah one of the conspirators but uh apparently that's all bullshit yeah apparently yeah that's what they want you to believe anyway he went he he died he was an adx florence supermax for years charles harrison and uh he finally died does he's he a legend f- does he feature in um that uh, oliver stone documentary you watched no i don't think so oh. you have the follow-up thing yeah no, yeah I exactly don't remember mentioning charles harrison I feel like Stone was pushing for someone else because there's there's plenty of theories of who those three tramps are of them like showing side by side photos with guys who worked for the CIA or the US State Department so I think Stone's probably pushing that angle. I believe they were just three homeless men. Do you think that? I think there's enough evidence to suggest that they are just three homeless guys. Yes. Uh, see, I just, uh, yeah, I just don't know about anything. I enjoy conspiracy theories uh, peripherally. I enjoy them a lot. Like, I love uh, reading about all this mad stuff that people think. Yeah, I uh, always have a copy of Catcher in the Rye on me everywhere I go. In case you see uh, a famous uh, person and you want to recommend the book. It's a, it's a reference to, to the uh, Mel Gibson Murder. film. Okay, which Mel Gibson film? Conspiracy Theory. It's classic. Ah. Remember have that? It's from the 90s. I do. Julia Roberts Julia is in Roberts. it, right? Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. He has to go into a bookshop all the time and he's like, I need to, I need to buy a copy of Catcher in the Rye. Yeah, I do remember that. He's like, all assassins have got three names, blah, blah, blah. That was his thing. And, and is something about the Jewish Patrick, Sh- Patrick Stewart is basically, yeah, the US government has technology where they're causing earthquakes on purpose, I'm going to say. Is that what they're using Jean-Luc Picard's head? Yeah. Anyway, fuck that. I'll never watch that yeah, movie again. No, nor should you. All right. Well, um, I had fun. Did you? What are we watching next I on did. the new slate? On the new slate, I guess, as I say, I can't... There's not really cinemas in this country. There must be one or two, but I don't know where they are. They're not in this town. So I don't know when I'll be able to see something cinematic. However, we've still got a ton of stuff to finish off from 2022. That's we on do the indeed. Lists. <clears throat> I was going to watch After Sun, but maybe we could just watch After Sun. I'd be up for watching After Sun. That would make sense because I think there's, it's going to be thematically rich. 
Yeah, yeah. Um, I f- I feel like I'm going to cry a lot. I think you might too. Yeah. Anything with, yeah, like honestly, Happy Valley had me crying this morning. Plus, I could reach out to the director of After Sun because we went to the same school and we do secret handshakes and stuff. Are you both Masons? We are, yeah. We're uh, Freemasons. Nice. So, but is he, was he in like your class at school, this fella? Well, you just made a, t- a terrible mistake because it's actually a lady called Charlotte Wells. Oh, right. What? Ladies are directing films these days. Uh, she's the next Lynn Ramsey. How dare you? Well, to be fair, the film is reportedly killing it, and it does sound yeah. like it's really good, and I'm looking forward yeah. to it a lot. We'll watch that. We'll watch that. Okay, we'll talk up, uh, and we've got, we'll have a special guest. What's her name? <laughs> Charlotte Wells. Yeah, I'll get it. Yeah, yeah, no yeah. <laughs> we'll be like... Fly her out to Montenegro. Uh, yeah, that's we'll do that. We'll do that. There's no way she could deny this request. I'll start singing the school song. I okay. I expect uh, like a much more in-depth uh, biography of her as a director than we got of Ruben Osland. I want the dirt, Andy. I'll see what I can do. She did start school just uh, like the year after I finished, but still, I'll get her. Yeah, yeah, you'll figure it see out. See what she can do. I'll find out. I'll get, I'll, I'm going to go through her. Yeah. And for I'll the. Go to her, I'll go to her Friends Reunited page. And see uh, what's on there. For, the, um, for, the, for, for next week, I have to confess some absolute ignorance. I had no idea that the bridge on the River Kwai is actually based on the railway man, kind of. <laughs> so uh, there. No, but it, it, I mean, it's the same, the same story ish. It's not, but it's uh, because uh, railway man's guy, Eric Lomax. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, it's based, uh, it's based on the prison camp where he stayed, basically. Yeah, but I think that's good. I think you, you're, you're seeing the same thing from two. It's, it's similar stories, but I think, mm. I think you'll find, I mean, I haven't watched, I haven't watched Railway Man yet, but I, I'm guessing they're going to be very different. Well, I'd imagine we are one's a David watch, Lean movie. Yeah, well, we're going to watch Japanese people being being slightly, mean, being slightly mean to a group yeah. of Westerners. That's what we're about to watch for five hours. But I'm going to have to like to as due diligence and penance. I'm going to have ramen a lot next week just to pay my respects to the island nation of Japan. I like referring to Japan as the island nation of Japan because the because the, 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 the Pearl Harbor announcement. You know, that's well, what we they come said. from island nations as well. The, one the thing island say, nation of Japan. The one thing I'll say about the uh, the World War II dead, the uh, Japanese World War II dead, is in the uh, Mishima episode, I said I used to work near the military base. I also used to work near the shrine where they enshrined all their war criminals. Huh. It was just uh, that was that was an even closer walk. That was just a five minute walk. But I and did you didn't go visit. There and pay. Oh, you did. I did visit. I did pay my respect to some of Japan's uh, harshest World War Two criminals. Yeah, they were super mean. I don't. I, yeah. I, I don't yeah, think. Pe- I don't think they get enough credit for how mean they were. Like they were like, and they were mean kind of they were in not a, nice guys. Like for example, and I'm going to re- refer to one of my favorite historians here: the communists that killed loads of people did it in a kind of a jesusy way but like well no i was like you know they thought oh it's the greater good and so forth but like the german fascists and the japanese imperialists were basically antichrists they were just Mm. horrible horrible yokes anyway that's why you need christ in your life you do need Christ in your life, mm-hmm. and you do you, you do you need him in a transubstantiation kind of way, and you need a representative of him to live in a big house in Rome. That's I, I disagree. Well, you're not you're not no, you're it not be the other version. You're not hot with the Bishop of Rome. I protest against that. 
Yeah, you and I'm your own. protestant. I bet you can't even name one of the theses. Yeah. Uh, it's, uh, guitar mongoloid. Worst Protestant ever. Well, no, that <laughs> Ian Paisley is surely the worst Protestant ever, but you're you're coming close. Yeah. Anyway. And uh, on that be- bombshell. Yeah, besides the non-belief in transubstantiation, I would like to say I love you. Bye. Love you too. Bye. We've lost dancing. these things that we took for granted.